This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host, Jane Brown. Libby is back tomorrow after a long weekend. Today marks our first chat with the Zoomer squad since the Ontario election, which, as we all know, ended with a bigger majority re-election for Premier Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservatives. Ahead of the election, many voters, in fact, many of you who called to fight back, expressed unhappiness with the way the governing Ford Tories let the health care and long-term care systems become overwhelmed during the pandemic and did not trust his ability to fix them. But elect him, they did. And now we wait and see if Doug follows through on his seniors platform. This is just one of our hot topics today with David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. And Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, joins us while both Peter Mugridge and Bill Van Gorder are off today. Uh, David and Daryl, welcome. Thank you, Hi, David, your thoughts on the re-election and how it seems affordability issues trumped uh, elder care issues? I'm not sure that any one set of issues trumped any other set. I think there was a general contentment to let it rest in for its hands. Uh, I think the low turnout by default is a grudging content with the way things are overall. I don't think any one issue... Uh, either drove people to the polls to vote for him or certainly didn't drive anybody to vote against him. No, that is very true. Daryl, your thoughts on the re-election? And did it turn out the way that you thought it would as a pollster? Uh, In in terms of the polling numbers, exactly as we thought it would turn out. In fact, uh, our final poll that we put out the day before is almost exactly what the the result was. So there was no surprise. Um, The level of turnout was a surprise. Uh, I think that uh, um, 43% is shockingly low. I think it might even be an historic record mm-hmm. for Ontario. So that was a, a bit of a surprise, but it didn't affect the uh, uh, the, um, the accuracy of what the polling was saying about, about the outcome. Uh, and basically, David is right. I mean, if this was an issues-driven campaign, if people were out there voting because they uh, particularly focused on uh, one specific issue or they had a real sense of what the parties were offering up, then the result probably wouldn't, would have been different. Uh, but as it was, people were just basically saying, look, uh, status quo is fine for now. We've had enough change over the space of the last while. I'd really like to settle down, and I think our government needs to settle down. So, uh, Doug Ford, you get a, a free pass, and the Progressive Conservatives get a free pass this time around. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you'll get one the next time around, but at this point, uh, people are satisfied enough. In fact, 55% of the people who we interviewed said they were satisfied with the government, which is well, you know, 14, point, 14 points higher than those that said they actually, uh, 14 points higher than the, the percentage that actually voted for them. So um, he was in a really, really strong position. People knew what the outcome was going to be uh, pretty much from the very start of the campaign. The numbers really didn't move. And uh, it was a campaign almost like it didn't happen. Daryl, were you able to drill down on that vote of confidence? Why 41% of the people who did vote voted for Doug Ford? Yeah, I think it was just more of an identification that... uh, on the issues that they were good on, which were mostly economic, they were good on them. And on the issues that they weren't seen as necessarily as good on, for example, healthcare, managing the COVID crisis, some of the issues that relate to, I would say, you know, things like inequality and that kind of thing, that they were in the game enough that it wasn't enough to defeat them. So none of those issues that were ones where they were significantly behind um, were things that were top of mind for people as they were voting in the election campaign. So, for example, on health care, uh, Andrew Horvath and the, uh, and the NDP were well ahead on that issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Doug Ford, you know, was, uh, you know, in the game, at least. I mean, even though the, uh, the NDP was well ahead, but not in such a way that it became the ballot question and people said, I have to vote for the NDP. The reason we know that is we see the results. David, do you want to comment on that? I, I completely agree. I think an interesting uh, 
thing that hit me on this is that um, there could be issues where the voters don't think anybody can really solve it with policy statements during the election. Healthcare is a very complicated issue, even if you don't like what he did. Uh, I would argue that the NDP was massively the biggest losers in the election. Ford lost 400,000 votes compared to last time, but he increased his share of the votes. So he was flat. There was a million votes less cast. The NDP lost 800,000 votes compared to last time, and they saw their share go from 33 to 23. They lost over a quarter of their – and she's pounding away at health care, mm-hmm. and nobody cares mm-hmm. uh, or not enough to vote for them. And uh, – I think they've got a real question to ask themselves about why didn't this resonate more strongly. Um, I think the voters think healthcare is a tough nut to crack. They're not very happy with Ford, but I don't think they feel there's some magic answer sitting out there and how come Ford doesn't have it, you know, and right. she does. It, they didn't see it that way. Well, let me put that out to you as well, the Zoomer Radio listener. Why did you ultimately cast a ballot for Doug Ford or Stephen Del Duca or Andrea Horvath or Mike Schreiner? Numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Daryl, on the issue of health care, which always seemed to come up as the number one issue most important uh, to voters, what do you think, in terms of the messaging from the three main party leaders, do you think there was some confusion around what each party was offering, or there was too, or there were too many similarities between what the parties were offering? What what, what was the breakdown of that? Well, the health care issue is a, a, an interesting interesting one to go into because. Uh, depending on who you are, on how you presented yourself in the campaign, people have one impression or another. So usually healthcare is one of those issues that tops the list whenever we go out and we ask people what's the most important issue. It's almost like a default answer for most people, just like back in the 80s it was unemployment and back in the 90s it was the deficit. Healthcare is in that position now. And uh, there's two elements to it. One of them is people who are actually have the competence to be able to fix it. And people who have the, their hearts in the right place and they care more about it. Where the NDP tends to do well is, I mean, who cares most about this? Where the conservatives and liberals are more competitive is, you know, who's got the skill to fix this? Uh, at, during the course of the campaign, it never really became different. It never really became clear which part of that was really dominating uh, the, the, the conversation. Because when, when you go out and you ask people, the other element to this, you go out and you ask them about how satisfied they have been with the last experience in the healthcare system, there are some people who had a terrible time, no doubt. But when you ask the majority, uh, when you ask people, the majority come back and basically offer a pretty positive evaluation of their own personal experience. So really, it's a combination of what they think about in the longer term, uh, what their personal experience has been a little bit, but also whether or not they think this is about the heart, whether or not you care about it, or whether or not you think it's actually about competence. And, and, and as complicated as that sounds, means that what we do is we move on to another issue. <laughs> and that's what happened in this campaign. It actually didn't really revolve around any issues of substance. It was really just more about stability. Let's go to the phones now. John in Peterborough, welcome to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. What would you like to add? Hi, yes, yes. We were talking about this with Libby's the other day, and she said she'd put a program on about Proportional representation. Yes. This, this, this system we use is just ridiculous. Re- absolutely ridiculous. When you look at the amount of the popular vote that Doug Ford got, I don't care who it's, which one of them gets it, and the amount of seats they get, it makes no mathematical sense. Now, here's the thing. Everyone pays taxes at the same rate for whatever they make, but they don't have the same say. If you vote in this province or in this country for other one, anyone other than the first two people that were in that vote, you should have stayed at home. Your vote never counted. And there's no one there will tell me different. All right, Everyone should. And by the way, yes, many young people tell me they will not vote because their vote doesn't count. In PR systems, they do count. All right. We appreciate your call. And I'll get our panelists take on moving towards proportional representation. There doesn't seem to be any momentum toward that, David. We had a news item uh, just before we came on the air about the Israeli government uh, surviving narrowly. They have proportionate representation if you want. And there's different systems, to be fair to our caller. 
But if you were, if you wanted to devise a system that was guaranteed to produce gridlock all that they've never had a majority government in the 70 years that they've been in existence if you, you can't improve on their system for terribleness of how to create a functioning <laughs> government because what happens is that all they have like 15 parties that all pick up three seats here five seats there so there are different models you got to be careful that the proportional system model you use is not going to produce the Israeli result, because we wouldn't like that. Well, the way that we hold leadership contests in this country for our political leaders, that is proportional representation. Yeah. That the, yeah. Those who get the lowest amount of votes on the first ballot, they drop off and yeah. their supporters go and support yeah. uh, the front runners. Yeah, and, and no, but, but I mean, our, our caller makes a great point. The Liberals had 1,117,000 votes in this election. They got eight seats. The NDP had 6,000 votes less. 1,111,000, they got uh, 30 seats. So the same number of voters, virtually. Right. The popular vote was basically <coughs> equal. On, yes. 6,000 difference. Yes. It's he, Del Duca got eight seats. Horvath got 30 seats. So it does illustrate that there's some imbalance there. But that's, it's not like we made up the rules in the no. middle of the campaign. Everybody kind of knew beforehand. Right. Uh, Daryl, in terms of what Canadians want to see and what might actually happen with our voting system? Uh, people don't really support electoral reform. There are some people who are really fascinated by it or really passionate passionate about it. Obviously, this is something that really bothers the caller. But, but um, people tend to get really passionate when the election takes place and they don't get the result that they want. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Liberal Party in 2015 promised that this would be the last first-past-the-post um, uh, election we were going to have at the federal level, and we saw how that went. Right. And the reason that they backed away from it and could back away from it and won the, le- the next election, even though they did, is because the, the public is not as fascinated by the rules of the, of the, um, of, of the electoral system as uh, a few columnists are in newspapers. Uh, I call it the uh, board games for political scientists. That's the other thing. You know, they, we all got to change the rules of the political system, and particularly people who are representative of small parties, uh, because they see that, uh, for example, the Green Party, for mm-hmm. example, in the last election got six percent of the six percent of the uh, the vote in, in this in this election, and only got one seat. Well, maybe they should get six percent of the seat. So you know, so there's always somebody fulminating for for something uh, to change the electoral system, except the voters. And the voters generally know the rule, rules. It's a fairly simple kind of system. Uh, they're not, you know, uh, uh, the placards outside of Queen's Park today complaining or the, uh, you know, Elections Ontario complaining about how the, the election was run. There's nobody who really sees that it was uh, significantly unfair. There's some people who could think, obviously, it would be fairer, and this gentleman was one of them. And, uh, but uh, I can tell you, I do these uh, election polls all over the world. Nobody's happy with their political system. Interesting. Uh, we're with an abbreviated Zoomer squad this week. David Kravitz, a regular on Mondays, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. And Daryl Bricker has joined us, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. But b- before we switch topics, uh, because we won't talk about the election for the whole half hour here, but I do want to point out a very informative article by our colleague Peter Mugridge on EverythingZoomer.com about Doug Ford's seniors platform and how CARP members are going to hold him to account, David, to follow through. Um, Without reading through all of them, he is promising to expand home care to some extent, building new long-term care beds and hiring 27,000 more nurses and personal support workers. Uh, In terms of him following through, your feelings on that? Well, I think um, he handed us a very interesting... um opportunity uh, with his campaign slogan of get it done and we are going to uh, see to it that he wears that uh, non-stop you said you were going to get it done did you get it done you call this getting it done we are going to go full blood because our members are in that same mode and i give them the conservatives credit for reading that mood and the mood is not so much don't give me your intentions don't give me how many billions you're going to throw at it don't give me your heart is in the right place per uh, daryl's comment which i agreed with do you care about it we want results now 
we want a measurable performance of, you said you were going to bring in this many personal care workers, where are they? You said you were going to do this, where is it? We will be watching with, uh, you know, yardsticks for measurement. And if he doesn't get it done, uh, we're going to want to know why. Daryl, how effective are advocacies like the Zoomers group CARP in making sure that Doug Ford follows through on his promises? Well, as long as they're aligned with the realities of what the province is facing and they have a significant constituency behind them, they can be very effective. Uh, And the reality is with what CARP's talking about, um, the aging of the population is one of the single largest issues we're going to be facing, not not just in this province, but around the world over the space of the next 25 to 30 years. Now, by 2030, the entire baby boom is going to be 65 years of age or older. By 2040, it's going to be moving into its 80s. Um, we're not set up to deal with this. So uh, we're going to have to start making some choices about things like longer-term care. We're going to have to start making choices about things like home care. We're going to have to have, a, and I was on a panel uh, with Libby and another, a number of other people, uh, in which dementia came up as, a, as, an, as an important issue. Yeah, that's going to be a really, really big issue going over the space in the next 10 to 15 years, even even in a bit longer than that. So uh, not only is CARP on the right issue, uh, it's on a growing issue, and it, it's got a growing constituency behind it. Absolutely. Let's take one last caller here before we switch topics and talk about the Queen. Barry in North York, uh, your thoughts about the election before we wrap up. Good afternoon, Jane and panel. Um, I voted green, and the reason why is because I think the environment is the most important thing, and it incorporates health. It also incorporates economy, because if the environment goes down, the economy goes down with it. A number of people, including my friend, who said, well, no, that's a wasted vote. So she she wanted to vote green this time, but she voted strategically and voted liberal because she didn't want green. PCs it. I even thought of that, but then I thought, no, I'm going to vote my conscience. People say, well, they'll never get in. Uh, well, they don't expect to get in, I'm sure, because they're not um, utopian dumb thinking. But the more seats we get, the more power we have. And you can bet your boots, I'm going to be watching the government to honor their promises, especially with what uh, the Premier said the other day. We were going to honor all our promises. I even contacted my MPP the other day about home care. We've really got to get more involved now. We really have to hold their feet to the fire. All right. That's where we're going to leave it for now. Thank you for that call. Uh, Zoomer Squad, let's talk about the Queen. David, what do you make of Queen Elizabeth's historic accomplishment of 70 years? Well, I think uh, when I contemplated, I actually go beyond the 70-year number into what were those 70 years? Where did they fall? And what changes she has had to, uh, I I won't say preside over, but she's been a part of how the monarchy has changed, how the world has changed, and the constancy of her values and her service through very radically different situations. So uh, she came along... uh, at a time of just massive upheaval, if you will, from a technology, from world politics, from the, uh, the balance of power in the world, the leadership world, the economy, science, uh, uh, women, starting with women's live all the way into Me Too, all the way into Black Lives Matter. So social, social media, from the time when Prince Philip was a radical for bringing movie cameras into the Buckingham Palace to film the coronation to uh, her own Twitter account. So what she's seen and that she's been able to keep that level of, you know, uh, classiness, I guess, if mm-hmm. you want to put it like that, you know, how constant and how how substantive she's been. She never that, seemed to fight it. That to me, but yeah. she's adapted, but without yeah. without necessarily just running in a 20 million different direction. I don't know how uh, she's got to be one of the most remarkable people in history. And I think more than just the number of years, it's what those years were. Stability all the way through. Uh, Daryl, your thoughts on the Queen and her Platinum Jubilee? Oh, congratulations to Her Majesty. Um, But, you know, when we look at what Canadians think about the Queen, she's one of their favorite people. Um, And this is, you know, spans the country. Even in the province of Quebec, she, she gets reasonably good ratings. 
and uh, you know, when we do our at, at the end of the year, we always do like, you know, who should be on Santa's naughty list and who should be on Santa's niceness. The, the, the queen's always one or two on uh, who should be on the uh, uh, Santa's uh, niceness. People just like her. The institution of the monarchy is a different question. Mm-hmm. And I think that's under a certain amount of pressure. And uh, um, uh, we'll celebrate the, the Queen's uh, you know, diamond or, or platinum jubilee this year. But you know, over the longer term, there's a, a fair amount of pressure on the legitimacy of, of, the, uh, of the royal family and the institution of the monarchy in Canada. And we'll see where that goes longer term. Uh, if you drop Quebec out of the calculations, the majority of the rest of the country is pretty um, pretty sanguine with the institution, but uh, those numbers seem to come down every year. And, and as you look at how Canada is transforming in terms of its population, more and more we have people who have less of a connection with that that whole thing forming up the, the larger parts of our populations, particularly in, in urban areas. So it'll be interesting to see how they deal with it going forward. But uh, kudos to the Queen. Uh, I don't think anybody could uh, say anything derogatory about her performance, just as a uh, um, it just as was, was just said, but uh, longer term, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the institution relative to our culture and particularly our government. I know we've talked about this before on Fight Back, Daryl, but in terms of uh, the day when it comes uh, that Queen Elizabeth is, is no longer with us and Prince Charles takes over and he is King Charles, the affinity for the royal family is not nearly as much, right, percentage-wise, when you poll Canadians on that? Yeah, it certainly takes a hit. I mean, a lot of it is ascribed to uh, to the, the current incumbent. Uh, but um, that that will be the opportunity as eyes turn towards uh, the new king, uh, and he gets an opportunity to reintroduce himself to the world. How does he handle that? And just as his when his mother came into uh, to office, uh, you know, replacing a uh, a much beloved king who had got uh, the, you know, the empire uh, through the uh, in, in the uh, the Dominions and others through the uh, through the Second World War, just as she came in and all eyes were on her and she performed, the same question will be, I guess, directed at uh, at, uh, at Charles, uh, who's obviously much better known than his mother was at at the time. But mm-hmm. I think it's a new opportunity for him to look at uh, look at where he wants to take it, and uh, um, he has an opportunity to uh, um, at least reach out and uh, and uh, create a sense of uh, of continuity with what happened before. Uh, but uh, it will be a bigger challenge for him than um, uh, than uh, I, I think maybe he even, he even anticipates. Public opinion around Prince Charles is quite soft. David? I also think there's a Zoomer aspect to this whole question that I'd like to just put on the table here. Um, Queen Elizabeth's mother, Queen Mother, lived to 102. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles is 75. So he's going to take over. God willing, if Her Majesty has some years left, but to your point, when it finally happens, he's going to be pushing 80, close to 80. Uh, William just turned, I think, 40, so William's looking at 65, 70 before he takes over, which means that um, uh, young George (laughs) George is looking at in his 50s, 60s, 70s, and William is part of a generation that's easily going to live to 110, 115. Good point. So... We could be looking at the zoomerization of the crown, where we're going to have a succession of monarchs that by previous standards would be unusually old in the future world we're going into. And Daryl said this a moment ago about how the population is aging. The monarchy is aging. So what is it going to be like when we accept it as the norm I'm being a bit blue skyish here, but the norm that you don't get to be the monarch until you're well into your 70s and 80s. And then you're starting a career of flying around everywhere. And she kept an insane work schedule, Queen Elizabeth, up until last year. That is a fascinating observation because she was a she was a young woman of 26 becoming the monarch. Philip gave up his uh, duties at 89 when he had (laughs) surgery, recovered and then went on for another seven, eight years after that. He didn't slow down till the year before his death, really. So now we're going to be looking at, oh, Charles, he's great. He's only 80. He's good for another 30 years. I mean, what are we going to I mean, just think about that mm-hmm. for a minute. It's going to just be interesting to see how that plays out. Yes. 
It is the 78th anniversary of D-Day. Oh, time is running out here with our Zoomer squad. D-Day, the beginning of the end of World War II, when Allied forces, including 14,000 Canadians, came ashore in Normandy, France, in the D-Day landings. In the second half hour of Fight Back, very special guest, Richard Romer, Honorary Lieutenant General of the Canadian Armed Forces, will join us. Uh, of course, none of us here in this conversation have any kind of personal reflection on World War II or D-Day. But uh, Daryl, uh, looking back and in terms of that historical time, uh, any any personal uh, memories via your grandfather, your father? No, not really. My, my, grand, my grandfather, uh, all my grandparents actually served in Canada, so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really uh, uh, a combat type of a situation for them. But what really strikes me is, I, you know, I'm old enough. I was an air cadet when I was a a teenager old enough to remember veterans from the first world war. Um, Me too, and yeah. they, they were fairly young, young men. Uh, then, uh, obviously second world war. Um, and the thing that, uh, really strikes me is how few there are left, how this is no longer, uh, something that people can talk about to the same degree with personal reflection, uh, that they, that they used to be able to talk about it. And, and, uh, every year it becomes fewer. So it's great that you have uh, uh, Richard Romer coming out of the flying Spitfires in in, uh, um, in uh, Normandy uh, on D-Day. He's a, he's a very, very rare person in terms of his ability to talk about his own personal involvement in it. But, uh, yeah, we are coming to that time in which uh, there will be no more living um, Second World War veterans, and these things will be becoming more historical events uh, as opposed to something that we, uh, that we can relate our personal experiences from. David? I think uh, I love history, and I think what I find interesting is that the younger generations, and I think it's inevitable, see all that as something that just happened and it was all going to work out. But the part about D-Day that I find the most interesting is that Eisenhower, the uh, head of all the Allied forces, had in his pocket a message that he was going to read had it failed. He had two messages written. We landed and it's working. We're there. Here we go. And it failed. We're in retreat. And I take full responsibility. I don't think we can appreciate today the level of risk, the level of sacrifice, the level of danger, how the whole... I'm not saying the Allies would have lost the war in the long run. I think eventually they would have overwhelmed under some... But D-Day itself was not a sure thing. Right. uh, what I remember from my parents' generation who lived through it, how they were hanging by the radio waiting for every little scrap of information. Uh, my father was in the service here in Canada, like Daryl's uh, uh, grandparents. He didn't get overseas, but they were all hanging on every second and how nervous everybody was, how dramatic it was. It was a very dramatic event, not an inevitable, oh, well, they had a battle. So we will leave it I there. That's leave. What I <laughs> Thank it. you. Thank you both, David and Daryl, uh, for your thoughts on these important topics of the week. Appreciate your involvement. Thanks so much, Jane. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Jane for Libby and still to come, an iconic Canadian war hero joins us, Honorary Lieutenant General of the Canadian Armed Forces, Richard Romer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns tomorrow. He is a national treasure, an iconic Canadian, and a World War II hero. Honorary Lieutenant General Richard Romer joins us now on this 70th, 78th anniversary of D-Day. During the same month, he is also on the cover of Zoomer magazine. General, thank you so much for sharing your reflections on this important day. It's great to be with you. It really is an honor to meet you. Thank you so much. I know it means a lot to our Zoomer radio listeners as well. Let's begin our conversation by talking about how you became a fighter pilot during World War II. I became a fighter pilot because I wanted to fly from the time I was about five years old. The war came along, and uh, on my 18th birthday, I joined the Royal Canadian Air Force. 
in London, Ontario, actually, and had set out to learn how to fly with the Air Force in the summer of 42, 43, and got my wings in commission. So it, uh, it was an objective that I'd had for a long time. General, when you reflect back on learning how to fly in that era, what do you remember about the experience of, of taking off and, and flying those fighter jets? Well, learning to fly, I flew the Tiger Moth in Windsor and Harvard at Aylmer. And then uh, I went overseas after I got my wings in commission. And in April of uh, forty. Three, I sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, being pushed hard by the submarine fleet of the enemy. Ten days of the scariest uh, kind of convoy you could imagine. And finally got to the UK, and there I learned to fly the Mustang fighter uh, aircraft, which was an American product. And we trained to be reconnaissance pilots, going over the enemy territory, looking for what the enemy was doing, mm-hmm. what tanks they had, or what guns they had, where their troops were, this kind of thing, all at low level. So that was the that was the route that I had taken, and the Mustang was my fighter aircraft. Was flying everything you thought it would be, and in the environment of the war? Was it everything you thought it would be? Well, it was the environment of the war, and it, it certainly I did 138 uh, combat missions, getting shot at all the time at low level, <laughs> and I uh, got hit only once, but I flew through clouds of, of what we call flak. But I was only... 19 and 20, so it didn't bother me that much. Uh, But at any event, I did, as you can tell, I did survive. (laughs) You did, that is for sure. That day, June 6th, 1944, D-Day, tell us about how your day went on that historic day. My day went this way. With our Mustangs, we were based at an airfield to the west of London, England, on D-Day. And uh, we took part in the actual assault by doing reconnaissance over the beaches. Uh, As they landed, the troops landed on shore on the French side. And uh, so that was our main role that they do reconnaissance to see what the uh, Germans were doing on the far side in Normandy. And we uh, really concentrated on the Orne River and a bridge on the Orne River called, it was at, at Denouville, at the Denouville Bridge, which was across the Orne River, just north of Caen. And uh, when we, my number one, Jack Taylor from Cornwall, he's gone now, but he was the leading, and we did a reconnaissance over the city of Caen, Mm -hmm. uh, and could see no activity. Then we drove north up the Orne River north up to a bridge which had been taken by uh, gliders, British gliders that had come across in the dark on the night of June 5, 6, and landed in the darkness. They had trained for months on it, and they were at the point that we arrived at that bridge. They were at the point taking by force the bridge which was critically important from a transport and movement point of view across the Orne River. Uh, And because our troops were landing by parachute on the east side of the Orne River, and to have control of that bridge was absolutely essential. 
So as we, Taylor and I, flew up the north, up the Orne River, we came to this scene of a whole bunch of probably a dozen huge gliders that had come down at night successfully and unloaded their British troops at this bridge. And the bridge was being fought over as we passed past over it, as the British troops were attempting to take the bridge before it got destroyed, and they were highly successful. And the bridge was named the Pegasus Bridge after the war, but at that point, it was simply the bridge across Deneuville, which was critically important in terms of the tactics. We didn't want the Germans to bring their tanks down into our area from where they were up in the Pas-de-Calais area. And uh, so holding that bridge was really critically important. After we had done our thing over the bridges, at, uh, at the Pegasus Bridges, uh, Taylor and I went uh, over the beaches where the troops were landing for the first time at about 7 in the morning. And uh, there were Canadian and British troops. And at the West End, the American troops. And they were all coming ashore in their uh, landing craft. It was quite a sight to see the cloud there was a huge cloud over the uh, beach area, gold and silver beaches. And uh, the cloud went up uh, about uh, 10,000 feet. So we all had to be underneath that cloud in order to see the beach and to protect the people landing from the craft under fire from the German forces. And that was our job, is, was to protect the landing craft to the best of our ability, which we did do. And we were successful at that. And the whole place was loaded with explosions going off, shells landing, shells being fired, smoke. Oh, it was just, and of course, the boats coming in were great targets for the German forces. We saw the regiments coming into the Queen's Own and others. And then finally, I looked at my petrol, my gas gauge, and it said zero. And here I was with my number one, Jack Taylor and his Mustang, the two of us. And I said to Jack, it's time to head for England because I have, I'm running out of fuel. <laughs> So the two of us throttled back and headed off to a place called Thorny Island. Thorny Island's an airfield over in the southern coast of England. I made it, and when I landed at Thorny Island, I'd been there before. My engine quit. I had run out of fuel. So it was a very exciting day, and I was able to do another trip across to the... Uh, beachhead that afternoon. So there was a busy, busy time for people like us. Thank you for your incredible recollection. You have painted a very detailed picture for us of June 6, 1944. If you're just joining us here at Zoomer Radio, we're with Honorary Lieutenant General Richard Romer recounting his role on D-Day, uh, 78 years ago on this day. 78 years. Yes. And w- when you hear that, w- I mean, uh, what do you think when you hear that it was that long ago? We're approaching the, the 80th anniversary. Well, it was a long time ago, no question about that. But the human brain is such, at least mine is, I can still see the images from those days very clearly some better than others, but the reality is the human brain is a magic place to pick up images from 70, 80 years ago or even more and see them very clearly. Some parts are obscured, but the reality is it's just a magic uh, talent that we human beings have and 
I hope that all the people who may be listening to this can share the magic of what the memory does. And memory can be defective and uh, and not right sometimes, but by and large, when a day like today occurs, and you're part of it, D-Day, the D-Day of opening up the attack on the German forces in France, a monumental day of hundreds of craft and thousands of troops. It's the kind of thing that stays with you if you took part in it, and it certainly stays with me. General Romer, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'd like to get your thoughts on aging and aging well, as well as the Queen, uh, your thoughts about the Queen uh, as she wraps up her Platinum Jubilee. And and we would also like to hear your thoughts on the war in Ukraine. Um, so we'll do that right after the break, okay? Okay, that's fine. Wonderful. We're back with General Romer in just a moment. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off today and on this 78th anniversary of D-Day, June 6, 1944, we have the distinct pleasure of being joined by Honorary Lieutenant General Richard Romer, who is recalling his memories from that day. Uh, he's been with us since 1230 and we have him here until one o'clock. General, I'd just like to talk about you, your health. Obviously, you've had a whole life beyond when you were a young adult in World War II. What do you attribute such excellent health to now at the age of 98? One of the things that I attribute my ancient age to at 98 is the fact that I have, in effect, lived in Collingwood since 1983. I had a huge law practice in Toronto. I did a lot of work having to do with buildings and constructing buildings and getting buildings approved. And the most striking example was a six-week hearing before the Interior Municipal Board for the use of the lands around Union Station back in the early 60s. I was retained by... CN and CP and others to act for them before the Ontario Municipal Board in a hearing that would change the use of the lands around Union Station from rail to general commercial. And the big change, we had a hearing before the Ontario Municipal Board that lasted for six weeks, and I was the counsel for the the applicants, and we were successful in the end result. And so the Ontario Municipal Board approved the change that transferred the use of the land from rail, which was very restrictive, to generally speaking, which is why you can see billions and billions of dollars worth of buildings that have been constructed in that area around Union Station since that time, all the way from from uh, Young Street across to Bathurst. And the most significant building that I got approved was to turn out to be the CN Tower. CN Tower was my legal creation, and I took it all the way from start to finish. And uh, that's the kind of building that I was involved in from my the viewpoint of my law practice, but I can carry down my law practice in land use for decades, even though I was still living in Collingwood. And the reason that I've lasted so long is that in Collingwood, there are two elements, three elements. The first element is that it's on the water. The water is pure and uncontaminated, and it's beautiful to be out fishing on and drinking as well. <laughs> the other part of it is that the, the, there is no great smoking factories here anymore. The factory that is 
produces glass at the west end of town is fundamentally about it. In other words, no, there's no contamination of the air and atmosphere in Collingwood. So clean, all, clean air and clean air and clean water. You attribute a lot of your longevity to that, and the fact that it doesn't take very long to get from A to B. Mm-hmm. I can be in the center of town at the uh, newspaper, or the liquor store, or whatever, in about seven minutes from where I live, and all of that creates an atmosphere and a place to live, which uh, allows the body and the brain to live a little longer than one would if one stayed in the center of a great metropolis called... Did we lose the general? Or he's there. That's the conclusion of my little discussion. Well, I I just have one follow-up question. All right. (laughs) I always have follow-up questions. Uh, General, in terms of how much exercise you get, how what kinds of foods you eat, how much sleep you get, I'm curious about that. Well, in my time, I played a lot of tennis. I played a lot of golf. In other words, I kept moving uh, athletically. I kept flying uh, militarily and civilian-wise, and flying is a great physical challenge and mental. And I'm, I was an excellent uh, pilot, and as far as I'm concerned, I still am. Right. But, but the reality is uh, physical activity is essential. At the moment, I still do my walks with my little dog, Charlie, uh, during the day, and I don't uh, act as vigorously as I used to by any means, but I do maintain a strong physical activity uh, way of life. Very important. Now, you've met the Queen and the late Prince Philip on a number of occasions. In fact, uh, I had to chuckle reading the current article in Zoomer magazine all about you. You are the featured story in the June-July issue of Zoomer magazine. And Prince Philip, I guess, joked with you that you had more medals than him on one of your visits. (laughs) This This was an occasion I run for the military the celebrations of uh, of the of the D Day at uh, Juno Beach, and uh, every ten years that we have a full scale celebration where Canada leads in bringing together speakers and celebrations in Normandy. So I, it is one of the things that I have done since two thousand and four. And so the reality uh, goes this way, that in 2004, I invited the Queen uh, to come to this uh, ceremony, and she did come, and she brought, of course, uh, Prince Philip. And uh, I had met the two of them beforehand, so it wasn't a, a strangers meeting strangers. But when the two of them arrived at Normandy to uh, the organization and the situation that I had organized to make the speech, I greeted them. I'm in full uniform, of course, as the general. And I greeted them as they came in in their car. They're part of 5,000 people, spectators. And... Uh, Her Majesty got out of her side, and I was there to salute her and to greet her. She was happy with that. And out the other side got Prince Philip. So when he came around the front end of the car, I'm there to greet him. I saluted him and shook hands. And uh, I said, I am General Rory. He said, I know you are, and you've got more medals than I have. (laughs) It was a joke. But the fact was, uh, he was that kind of guy. He was yeah. a fantastic man. And the Queen was, has been so lucky to have had him for such a long time. He was absolutely superb. And uh, I have put together with uh, Zoomer, the edition of Zoomer for the summer months, uh, 
my face is on the cover, and there are stories inside in the magazine of about nine of my meetings with the Queen and Prince Philip, and I cover with pictures and text. Yes. I cover each of those meetings, and including that little vignette about Prince Philip, with a great sense of humor, covering his statement about the medals. And, of course, he was right. I do have more than he had. <laughs> um, I'm actually looking at the picture in Zoomer magazine right now of you and Queen Elizabeth on that day, and I really encourage everyone to pick up uh, this copy of Zoomer magazine, the June-July issue with General Romer on the front cover. Before we let you go, and uh, this has just been a marvelous moment in my career, so thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to know your thoughts about the war in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left, but uh, what, do you, what do you see as the way out of this? Uh, I, I don't know that I have a way out of it at the moment, but there is going to be a war, way out of it one way or the other. What is happening in Ukraine is a lesson for Canada. We are people who don't pay any attention to defense you know, in the sense that we should. And the reality is Canadians should wake up to the fact that Russia sits on our northern boundary. Our our northern Arctic boundary of the Northwest Passage is uh, between us and Russia. They are ruthless as can be, and we should be upping our defense maximum and I'd like somebody to stand up in the House of Commons and say, defense, for heaven's sake, get new airplanes, get the defense going again. It is a serious, serious business for Canada and its immediate future. So that's what I would say. And General Romer, in terms of boots on the ground in Ukraine, uh, Ukraine is losing dozens of fighters every day. In terms of providing them support with uh, munitions and, and all that they need to fight this war, how is Ukraine going to deal with depleting forces in their own country? They're dealing with them, with the those competing forces, in the best possible way, astonishing, astonishingly well. And so it's up to countries like Canada to supply equipment, military equipment, whether it's guns or or ammunition or whatever, to support their activity against the uh, against the uh, the onslaught of uh, of Russia. And uh, I think that what we should be doing is maintaining what we can without actually picking up arms ourselves, because that will trigger our obligations under the NATO and NORAD obligations. We don't want to get into a war, but we want to make sure that we help uh, the Ukrainians do the best they possibly can in the circumstances. Honorary Lieutenant General Richard Romer, thank you so much for your time on this anniversary of D-Day. My pleasure, my honor to be associated with you and with Zoomer magazine. Thank you. Thank you. Libby is back tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.